Let's pray before we look at Ruth together. Our Heavenly Father, as we sang a few minutes ago, our hearts are prone to wander. And Father, we pray that you might focus us from your word tonight. Uh, help us to grow in our faith. Help us to strengthen in that faith and continue to trust in Jesus always. We pray that you'll use me tonight to communicate your word clearly and faithfully and compellingly. Uh, so that it might speak not just to our minds, but also to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you been enjoying this series in the book of Ruth so far? Some people have said yes. Some people have sat quietly and some people haven't. I don't know. I have. I think it's been great. Uh, but like all good things, this side of glory, it comes to an end. Uh, and it comes to an end tonight. Because today we come to the resolution of the story. And... Uh, like in any good TV series, in fact, my favourite TV series is back on TV after several years off TV in the last couple of weeks, 24. Is anyone else who loves 24, watches 24? Only a few people, a few out-of-touch people like me. There you go. But uh, I love 24 because every episode you're left hanging. So I don't know how Jack Bauer, if you know the show, I don't know how Jack Bauer copes with it. You'd die of a heart attack if you're a normal person. But every hour his life is on the line. But then you come back and within five minutes everything's fine. But then 50 minutes later everything's in trouble again. And it's a little bit like that. Actually, it's not a whole lot like that. But it's a little bit like that <laughs> in Ruth. Because the thing is, what happens in this story is Naomi and Ruth keep having these horrible setbacks. Have you noticed that each chapter there's like a setback? Then things look like they're going to, to happen. Things are going to work out for them, but then there's another impediment. There's something else that gets in the way. So open up Ruth with me. It's only four chapters, so we can flick through it together. Open up page 236 in uh, these black Bibles. And if you remember in chapter 1 what happened, Naomi and her husband and her two sons, they left their homeland of Judah because they were worried about the famine that was happening there, and they went to Moab to try and find food. And what happened in Moab was the sons married two Moabite women. Uh, that's where Ruth joins in the story. But then tragedy struck. All the men died. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, the two sons, they all died. And so Naomi is left with these two daughters-in-law, who are both Moabites. Uh, and even though there we start to get an inkling of just what a faithful, godly woman Ruth is as she sticks with Naomi and so forth and travels away from her homeland to stay with Naomi and, and serve and love her. But at the end of the chapter, things are pretty low and, and pretty rough for Naomi and Ruth. And if you remember, what did Naomi say at the end of chapter 1? She said, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter because I am angry with God, I am bitter with God. So Naomi is thinking things are desperate, things are horrible and she knows it's God's fault. She blames God for it. That's what she does. Then in chapter 2, a ray of hope enters into the picture in the form of Boaz. It's always nice if you're a guy to be called a ray of hope, but that's what Boaz is. He comes onto the scene. And what do we learn about Boaz straight away? He's a man of godliness. That's the first thing you see. He's a man who knows the Lord. More than that, uh, he's kind and he's generous. And we've seen him as a real example. Uh, but even more than that, He's a family redeemer. So it was in chapter 2 that we came across this idea of the family redeemer, or if you've got a different translation, a kinsman redeemer. And what that means is, is he's a man related to Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband. 
and so not only do Naomi and Ruth get provided for in sort of the short term, because Boaz is generous to them and gives them this barley to eat and so forth, there is this hope that just maybe, just maybe, he will be the one to give them lifelong security because he might take Naomi and Ruth, Ruth in as his wife, and, and take on caring for them for the rest of their lives. But at that point, it was just a hope. Uh, and then we came to chapter 3. So look with me at chapter 3 that we looked at last week. And in chapter 3, Naomi and Ruth make a risky and risque move. You remember Kev went all red as he was preaching last week and talking about it. He got a bit embarrassed, a bit tongue-tied as he talked about it. But Ruth goes at night, inappropriately really, to the threshing room floor. Uh, and there she and Boaz talk in secret. Uh, and she asks him to protect her. She, she says... Put the, the cloak of your garment over me. Uh, put the edge of your garment over me. Uh, and literally, but also I think metaphorically, she's saying, spread the wings of your protection over me. And she doesn't say it outright because that would have been culturally inappropriate and it would have shamed uh, Boaz if she had. But she was effectively asking him to marry her. That's where we got to at the end of chapter 3. And so we're thinking this is it. Love wins. It's beautiful. It's all happening. It's wonderful. But then there's another setback. You remember what the setback was at the end of chapter 3? The setback is strange. It's different to all the other setbacks. The setback is actually Boaz is too godly. It's a strange setback. But it's Boaz's godliness and Boaz's honesty that is the setback at the end of chapter 3 because Boaz realises that there is a closer relative, a closer man who has, according to the law and the customs, he has the right to marry Ruth first, if he would like to. Just by the by, yet again, as we've seen right through this book, Boaz is a great example of godliness. And I'll tell you why. He does what is right, even if it means it makes it harder for himself. He does what is right, even if it means he misses out on what he wants. That's real godliness. Because that's when you see true godliness, isn't it? That's when the rubber hits the road, if you like. When the godly choice, the godly decision means you miss out. You don't get what you want. Or at least you make it more difficult to get what you want. It's amazing how often we let what we want change our understanding of God's word. And our understanding of what is right. It, when we really want something, we love looking for a way for God to justify it for us. And I'm sure Boaz was tempted by that here. We, we, we justify doing the wrong thing or failing to do the right thing because God would want me to be happy and he'd want what I want for me. So Boaz, though, is godly. He says, what does God want me to do? What does God's law say? Not what do I want for myself? What is right? I'll do that and I'll trust that God is good. I'll trust that God is good even if I miss out on marrying this girl who I want to marry. But back to Ruth. The point is, at the end of chapter 3, we're left hanging as we come to chapter 4. And the question is, will Boaz get the girl? That's the question. It's not every book of the Bible. That's your question, your main point for your sermon. But that's it. Will Boaz get the girl? So let's look at chapter 4. Look with me. Boaz goes to the town gate. That's where all the business was conducted in, in a town like Bethlehem. They didn't have a town hall or that sort of thing. They didn't have a forum or something like that. You went to the town gate 
and that's where you conducted business. That's where men sat down to deal with government and business and that sort of thing. And so Boaz sees this other fellow, this other family redeemer walking past and he calls him over to talk to him. We don't hear his name, we don't know who he is, but he calls him over. Uh, this man who has a better claim, a, better, a closer connection to Ruth and Naomi. Then what he does is he gets 10 elders of the town to come over and sit with them as well. And I think the idea is that they'll be witnesses and they'll resolve any disputes in their discussions. And so Boaz explains the situation. But it's a bit strange for us because he doesn't start with the question of marrying Ruth. Did you notice that as we read it before? What does he start with? Real estate. A block of land. I don't know. Is Bethlehem like modern day Sydney where nothing is more important than real estate? I don't know. But look with me from verse 3. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the land of Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do so. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know, because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it. And I am next after you. Now, what's this all about? Uh, well, we have to understand, like in a lot of Ruth as we've looked at it, we have to understand the Old Testament law and the background to this, if we're going to get what he's talking about. See, the Old Testament laws had these mechanisms to keep property within a family. Uh, they had these rules to keep property in any given family. So if a family member sold a block of land, it was offered, first of all, to their family to the closest family member first and then down through the family until everyone said they didn't want it and only then could it be sold outside the family. And if it did get sold outside the family, it wasn't a permanent sale. You couldn't get rid of your land in that way. See, after a number of years, what they called a jubilee would happen and all the land reverted back to whoever owned it originally. Now, why was that in the law, do you think? It was part of God's way of ensuring that poverty was not multi-generational. It was part of God's way of ensuring that just because there was one dad who was down on his luck, his whole family for generations wasn't destined to be in poverty. It reverted back after a while. And more than that, on the other hand, people could not become exceedingly rich by preying on the misfortune of others and buying up all the land, like happens in modern-day Sydney today. We could learn quite a bit for our society from God's way of doing things, I think. But anyway, here Naomi is selling this, what was probably a very, very tiny parcel of land. It would have just been a part of a bigger block of land uh, and she could do nothing with it. And so this closest family member had first dibs. And so at the end of verse 4, what's his decision? Look there, I want to redeem it, he says. And at that point... If we were a Hebrew reader of the Old Testament who understood all the traditions, who understood all the laws, our heart would sink at that point. Why? Because if he gets the land, he also gets Ruth. That's the way it works. We want Boaz to be the redeemer, don't we? This whole book we've waited for Boaz to be the redeemer. He's the hero. He loves Ruth. He's the guy who should get it. He's looked after her. But it's not like this other guy's a bad guy. He's just doing his duty. But we want Boaz to win. But then Boaz brings up the question of Ruth. You know when Jesus says, be as innocent as, as a dove and as shrewd as a snake? I think that applies to Boaz. I think he knew 
If I bring up the land first, but then I bring up Ruth, then maybe, just maybe, I'll get both. But anyway, look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. This is what we've been talking about before, about how the, what the role of the kinsman redeemer was, was to marry the wife of the widow and give her a son, and that son would take on and leave, take the family name of the dead man so that it was preserved forever. And it's at this point that the other fellow sees that it's a bit more complicated than just getting a bit of property. Because, you see, he has to find the money to buy the field, so he's going to have to sell off some of the things he has to get the money to buy the field, but then he won't get to keep the field. For his side of the family. He has to find the money to buy it. But then any son he has with Ruth will take Elimelech and Marlon's name. And effectively they'll keep that side of the family alive. So he'll end up in a worse financial position than he was before if he doesn't. More than that he would have to support Naomi and Ruth for the rest of their lives. Which would be an expensive extra burden. And in all likelihood I think the fact that Ruth was a Moabitess probably was weighing on him as well and the shame of that marrying this foreign woman who God had said not to marry that worried him as well so weighing it all up he turns down his right to redeem the field and take Ruth as his wife look at verse 6 the redeemer replied I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it and so in a custom that's really weird to us and I, for one, am thankful we don't do today, if you've ever seen my sandals. He takes off his sandal and he hands it to Boaz. And that was how they signed a contract. In front of witnesses, by taking off your sandal and handing it to someone else, you were saying, I give my rights to you, my right over this property and my right to marry this woman. And, of course, what do we do at that point? We all cheer because now... Boaz is going to get the girl. There is nothing stopping Ruth and Boaz from getting married. So Boaz turns to the elders and he claims what is now his. Look at verse 9. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. I will also acquire Ruth the Moabites, Marlon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his home. You are witnesses today. And again, in that speech, we just see something of the character of Boaz, don't we? You see, yes, he loved Ruth, but doing this cost him an enormous amount. And he was doing it for other people. He wasn't doing it for himself. He was doing it for the good of others. He was doing it so that someone else's name was carried on, that someone else's name was preserved. And that was more than this other fellow was willing to do. And I want to say to you, as Kevin pointed out last week, Boaz must point us, must sort of trigger in our brains and get us to think about our Redeemer, our true Redeemer, our great Redeemer. He points us to that other man born in Bethlehem. Our Lord and Saviour Jesus. See, Jesus, who at great personal cost, at the cost of his own death, redeemed us, saved us from sin, gave us hope, gave us joy, saved us from God's judgment. And here is the thing. 
we weren't a pretty young woman when Jesus redeemed us. Well, some of you were, but I never was. But you know what I'm saying? Like in Romans, what does Romans say? While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for us because we're lovely. He didn't redeem us because we're beautiful. He redeemed us despite us out of love. That is our great redeemer. But back to the city gate and Ruth chapter 4. The elders and all the other people at the gate, they are amazed. They are amazed at this amazing and sacrificial love that Boaz is showing. And so they ask for God's blessing on Boaz and Ruth. And their prayer really is beautiful. If you, if you know your Old Testament, you understand just how beautiful this prayer is that they pray for them. This is a bit of an ad for the uh, intro to the Bible course coming up. Because if you don't know your Old Testament, you won't understand what they're praying here because they're talking about Rachel and Leah and Jacob. Do that course so that you understand the richness of the Scriptures. But anyway, look here. They pray that Ruth and Boaz might be blessed like the great ones of the past. Look at verse 11. It says, The elders and all the people who are at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel, May you be powerful in Ephrathah and famous in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. It's a beautiful prayer, especially if you know the story of Jacob and Rachel in particular, and, and the lengths Jacob went to in order to marry Rachel, to have the sons who became the nation of Israel. And what happens? God answers their prayers. Look at verse 13. It says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he was intimate with her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. So at last, there is the happy ending. Ruth and Boaz are married. They have a son and everything is right in the world at last. And if it was a modern movie showing up on the screen, that's where it would end would end with sort of the camera fading out from the happy couple standing there with their beautiful boy and, and they're smiling at each other in that way that only parents do with a little boy between them and the lens would get all fuzzy like it's got Vaseline on it and that's how it would end. <laughs> but it doesn't end there. I've been reading uh, Lord of the Rings with my son Sam and I think this is a bit, more, a bit like the Lord of the Rings if you saw the last movie. You know how it finishes about an hour in, but then there's two hours where it just keeps going after the ending. Well, it's a bit like that with Ruth chapter 4 because uh, there's more to the story. But actually it's the most important bit of the story, these last little bits. Because if you remember, the book of Ruth is not actually about Ruth. It didn't start with Ruth. Who did it start with? Naomi. It's about Naomi. You see, back in chapter 1, it was Naomi who felt that God had abandoned her. It was Naomi who felt that life wasn't worth living anymore. She was the one who was bitter. Well, now it comes back to Naomi at the end of the story. And all her friends surround her. And it's this wonderful moment. Look at verse 14. It says, Then the women said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. 
Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap and took care of him. The neighbour women said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed, which means servant. So at last, Naomi can be content. Her husband's name has been carried on. All her prayers have been answered. She has a son. I mean, if you think about it, literally he's not related to her at all by blood, if you think about it. Uh, But the women are right. This is Naomi's son. Because he is the one who will carry on the name of Elimelech, her husband, and Marlon, her son. He will support her. He will sustain her even into old age. And God has done this for her through the unlikeliest of sources. God has done it through a foreign daughter-in-law who is more godly and more faithful and more loving than seven sons would ever be, as the other women say. And God has done it through a faithful man, a faithful redeemer, named Boaz, a godly and upright man who was willing to go beyond what was required of him by the law to provide for her. And so the story started with bitter Naomi blaming God for everything bad that had happened to her, but it ends with thankful Naomi rejoicing in God's love and grace and provision for her. It's a great story, isn't it? I hope you've enjoyed it. And I thought I would do now is just quickly draw together some of the threads that the story has taught us over all four of the chapters. And I've got three points. You'll see them there on your outline. First thing I want to say is what this story has done is it has shown us wonderful examples of true godliness. See, in Ruth and Boaz, we have wonderful examples of what true godliness looks like. So we've seen Ruth's faithfulness, the way she sticks with Naomi and serves her and cares for her no matter what. When the easier option, the option even Naomi said she should take, is to run back to her old country and run back to her old family where she'll be provided for. But she is faithful and she sticks with Naomi and she works to support her. More than that, we have seen the wonderful kindness in Boaz, haven't we? that generosity of spirit. If you want one word for this whole book, the word is kindness. That's what it is. You see, and we've seen that true godliness doesn't stop at the obligation. Too many Christians, I think, think godliness is asking, what do I have to do as one of God's children? And what am I not allowed to do as one of God's children? And then I'll do whatever I want in between those two things. Too many Christians treat godliness like that. What do I have to do? Okay, I'll do what I have to do. I'll do the minimum. And what am I not allowed to do? All right, I'll avoid that. But everything else is fair game. That's not godliness. That's how the Pharisees lived. You know the Pharisees in the New Testament? And what did Jesus think of the Pharisees? They weren't great role models for us, were they? Now you see, true godliness, if you want a role model, look to Boaz. Because true godliness sees God's laws as the starting point for godliness. Godliness understands what Jesus means when he says you can summarize the whole law in love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love one another. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. True godliness looks for opportunities to show kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and love like that of Christ in every circumstance. That's what true godliness is. And my prayer is that this church, 
might be one that is just full of people like Boaz, people whose kindness just sort of flows out in a way that you could never legislate for. See, my prayer is that we're not a church that says, tell me God's law and I'll do it out of obligation. But instead, we are a church where people love one another and show kindness to one another and have that spirit of generosity that just flows out and you can't stop it. Because that is what happens when people truly know God, like Boaz and Ruth did. And in particular, it's what happens when people know what God has done for us in Jesus. That's what we see in Boaz and Ruth. Second point I want to make is this book should have shown us what we call God's providential care. See, life this side of heaven will have times of horrible, horrible trials. It will also have times of wonderful joy. That is the life we have this side of heaven. And we see that in Naomi and Ruth, don't we? They have the awful lows and they have the incredible highs. And that is life in this sinful, fallen, broken world. And when we face the low points, because we will, we can be tempted to be like Naomi back in chapter 1, don't we? We can be tempted to rail at God, to question God, to say, God, why, why are you letting this happen to me? Why me? We can be tempted to challenge God and doubt that he really loves us and doubt that he really has our best interests at heart. What this book does is it reminds us that God is in control and God is working for the good of those who love him even if sometimes we could not see how it could possibly be the case in our present circumstances. It's like the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.28 that I think Troy took us to back in chapter 1. Look with me on your outline. Romans 8.28. It says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. It's a great promise of Scripture and we're reminded of it in Ruth, but I want to say something here because here's the thing. That promise is eternal. It's really important to understand that. That promise is eternal. The greatest good for us is what? That we will stand on the last day trusting in Jesus. The greatest good for any human being is that when Jesus returns, he will look at us and he will say, you are one of my forgiven, chosen, dearly loved children. That is the greatest good for us. You see, we will not always see the good news outcome that Boaz and Ruth and Naomi saw. God doesn't promise us that in this life. So we have to understand this. We do not have a promise that we will be blessed in this life, that the times of trial will evaporate and that we will see incredible blessing here in this life. We don't have that promise. Many Christians will face suffering and pain in this life and sadly never see relief. God in his grace often does answer our prayers and relieve our burdens, but he doesn't promise it. Have you seen on social media or in the newspaper or anything this week that Christian lady in the Sudan at the moment? Have people seen that story? This lady in the Sudan, and in that country, it's illegal to convert from being a Muslim to being a Christian. And at some point, apparently, she converted from being a Muslim to being a Christian. And she's eight months pregnant to her Christian husband, 
And she's been sentenced to death in this Muslim country for being a Christian. It's horrible, isn't it? Absolutely horrible. And we pray for her. Whoever's leading the prayers later on, lead us in prayer for that lady. We pray for her. And at the moment, they've relented a little. They've said, we'll wait till the baby is born before we put you to death. That is the world we live in. And it's horrible. And we pray that somehow God might work through political means and Amnesty International or something and save her. We pray that, but we do not have the promise that he will. See, there are people here in our church who struggle in all sorts of ways. There are people here with all sorts of problems and we pray for you. We pray for one another that God might deal with those problems and relieve those burdens and by his grace he often does like he did for Ruth and Naomi but we do not have a promise that he will. See the promise we do have though is that God is in control. That is the promise. That God is in control and he is working through all these things even through our trials and through our sufferings and our struggles, he is working through them for our eternal good. He is working through them so that we might stand there on that last day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, so that we might stand there and he will say, welcome into my kingdom, my dearly loved brother and sister. That's what he's working for. And that is the greatest promise and the greatest hope that anyone could ever have. Which leads to my final point, my third point. Uh, The story of Ruth and Boaz was not just about God working for their good. If you think about it, they're actually pretty irrelevant people in the grand scheme of things. See, it was actually part of God's great plan for all of humanity. Just look with me again at verse 17 talks about the baby boy being called Obed and then it says he was the father of Jesse the father of David and then he traces the family tree all the way back to Perez the son of Judah and we sort of think it's a funny way to end the book isn't it we sort of think you'd leave that bit out sort of like the last two hours of the Lord of the Rings you'd leave that off and no one would be any the worse off sort of thing but actually it's the most important bit of the book Actually, it's the whole reason this book is in the Bible. Otherwise, it's just a nice story. But it's actually the most important part of the book, those last few verses. Because what it shows us is that this little boy, Obed, is not just the answer to Ruth and Naomi's prayers, as wonderful as that is. He's part of God's plan for the salvation of all people. You see, if this hadn't happened... If God had not brought Ruth and Boaz together and made this happen, then the great King David would never have been born. The greatest king of all of God's people of all God's time. This little baby Obed is the grandfather of that great king. And when we get to the New Testament, just flick with me to Matthew chapter 1. Everyone turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. It's the first page of the New Testament. I think it's about page 870 or something like that. No, 880 something. 885. Matthew chapter 1. Have you found it? The whole New Testament 
The whole story of Jesus starts with this family tree. And we often think, why have they got that there? And we skip it on Christmas Day and we start at verse 18 with the birth of Jesus and the nativity story. But actually, the genealogy, as it's called, is the most important bit. Why is it so important? Because what you see is this is God's, this is Jesus's family tree. This is where he came from. And look there at verse 5. There's Boaz. And I think you get a wonderful insight into just why Boaz might have been so willing to help a foreigner. Because who's Boaz's mother? Rahab, the foreign prostitute who saved God's people and who was welcomed into God's people. That's who his mother was. So of course he was going to welcome Ruth, the foreign woman who had no one else to care for her. More than that, there is Ruth, recorded for all time. And she's not just the great-grandmother of David, is she? Because when you go on 14 more generations and then 14 more generations after that, who is Ruth? I can't say how many greats, but she is the great whatever grandmother of Jesus. You see, that's why this is such a wonderful little book, the book of Ruth. Because this little event, this little moment in history, it's not just a romance, it's not just to encourage us, it's not just to give us a good example of godliness to follow. This is our history. If you don't get this and you don't love this, I want it to be your history. Because if you love Jesus and he is your Lord, this is our history. God was working through the minutiae of ordinary average human beings, of these seemingly unimportant people's lives. He was working through it ultimately to bring about his great plan for all of humanity and for all of history, to bring his great king into the world, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He was doing this so that he could send the one who wouldn't just bring joy to an old widow, as wonderful as that is, but he would send the one who would offer eternal joy and eternal hope and eternal salvation to all of humanity. That's why this book is here. And you see, it's because we know our great Redeemer, Jesus. It's because we know him that we can be totally confident that God is working for our good in all things. He is working for our eternal good in everything we face in life. That's what Ruth teaches us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful part of Scripture. We thank you for this book of Ruth. We thank you for the example of godliness we have in Boaz. And we pray that our church might be one full of Boazes, full of people whose kindness and gentleness and generosity just flows out of us because of our love for Jesus. And Father, we pray that we might trust in your eternal promises. We thank you that we can have that certain hope that you are working for our eternal good because you have sent us the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins so that we might have eternal life. And we pray in his wonderful name. Amen.